Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. Before we open up God's word of truth this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that you have given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us. And Father, we're thankful that you haven't revealed it to us in some sort of systematic theology or doctrinal book or something of that nature where we might read it all, study it a few times, and then think we know it all. But you've given it to us in your word through various uh, different literary devices from historical narrative to epistles to poetry. And it forces us constantly to go back to read it again and again and again, to compare Scripture with Scripture, to uh, probe, to dig, to uh, understand how one Scripture relates and illuminates another Scripture, and how by studying your Word and continuing to do so, it, it opens up so much that is not necessarily apparent on just our first, second, or even 50th reading of your word. So challenge us with the need to know your word, to desire it like a newborn baby. As our Lord prayed, it is by means of your word that we grow, that we are sanctified, that we advance spiritually, that we need to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against thee. So, Father, we pray that we might be challenged by the importance of walking closely with you, walking consistently with you as we live our lives day by day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to start, as we should, in Ephesians. So let's turn there to Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 5. And I want to review just, just briefly... But what we're going to look at today is a question that is raised as we read through this next section, and that is, can our inheritance be lost? Can we lose our inheritance? Because it appears when we read through Ephesians chapter 5 and we get down to um, verse 5, we read, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, the way many of us read that particular verse and that phrase that has to do with inheritance in the uh, kingdom of Christ and God is we read that as a statement of our eternal salvation, that we read that, and it sounds like what that is talking about is our uh, our eternal life. 
we read it as if it is talking about getting into heaven for eternity as opposed to the penalty of the lake of fire. And we can understand why people may think that. But as we grow and as we learn and as we study how certain phrases are used in the Scripture, how the gospel is clearly, clearly stated that it is not by works, it is by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 we spent some time on. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, that not of works, lest any man should boast. And so then we understand from many passages that we just went through in our study of the uh, substitutionary atonement of Christ, that on the cross, Christ paid the penalty for sin. So why is it that if we commit certain sins, it appears to say, that we're going to be excluded from heaven. There's basically three ways that this passage, this idea has been dealt with. We'll look at all of this more. And that is, number one, that this idea of that you will not inherit the kingdom means that you lost your salvation that after you were saved, you committed certain sins or you continued to commit certain sins. There was no change in your life, and therefore uh, you lost what God had given you. That is usually defined as the Arminian position, uh, which is the idea that we somehow contribute to our salvation in one way or another. I always tell people, if you think you can do something to lose your salvation, then somehow subtly... In your thinking, you thought there was something you could do to contribute to your salvation. And yet that would be blasphemy. For Christ paid it all. We can do nothing to contribute to our salvation uh, whatsoever. So that's the first option. The second option is an option that is often represented uh, as Calvinism. But there are many Calvinists, such as Lewis Berry Chafer, John Walbert, a number of others at Dallas Seminary who would be identified as a moderate Calvinist who would not go along with this position, and that is the idea that if you are truly saved, there will be such a change in your life that there are certain sins you will not commit, or if you did commit them, they would not become a characteristic part of your life. This view is sometimes identified as... uh, perseverance salvation or lordship salvation. It is the idea that it, that if I'm truly saved, then I will persevere in spiritual growth. doesn't mean that I won't sin or even have a time period of being uh, carnal or rebellious, but that if I'm truly saved, then the trajectory is inevitably going to be upward in my spiritual growth, even if there's some potholes and cliffs along the way. So that is called, we usually refer to that, or I usually refer to that as lordship salvation, perseverance salvation. It is part of TULIP, which is the acronym for the five points of Calvinism. It's the P for perseverance. But you, as I mentioned earlier, you have various theologians, as I mentioned, Chafer, Walverd, Ryrie, a number of others, who will take 
the P and divest it of that perseverance lordship aspect and just say that refers to eternal security. The third view is that we are eternally saved no matter what we have done or what we will do the instant we trust in Christ as Savior. There are no conditions, no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no condition that, yes, you're saved, but the evidence of that salvation is your perseverance. That's lordship. What we have to understand is the assurance of our salvation is not grounded in our works. It's not grounded in our spiritual growth. It's not grounded in our avoidance of certain sins. It is grounded in the promise of God. The promise of God that if we trust in Christ as Savior, we have everlasting life. Period. God makes that promise and God keeps his promise. It is not dependent on anything we do. And therefore, none of us should ever have the kind of uh, guilt feelings or remorse that some people have. Oh, I've committed this act or that act. I always have these kinds of thoughts. I'm not really saved. We often hear people comment, especially if it's related to public figures who have made uh, statements that they have believed in Christ. No, so I didn't say a profession of faith. That's a confusing statement because a lot of people for profess to be Christians. That's not, not the same as saying, I believe Christ died for my sins. I believe Darwin said that human beings evolved from lower life forms and we evolved from monkeys to man. That is not the same as saying I believe mankind evolved from monkeys. There's a difference. One is saying what I believe. One is saying what I think others believe. There are a lot of people who say, I am a Christian. That doesn't mean you believed Christ died on the cross for your sins. You may be growing up in a culture where it is predominantly Christian and you go to church, but that doesn't mean you've ever trusted in the gospel. It just means that you think that because everybody around you is a Christian and you're in a so-called Christian country that somehow uh, you are also a Christian. A Christian is someone who has believed specific things. The specific thing is that Jesus uh, is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, he took on humanity, and because he was the God-man, he was the unique person of all history, and he was qualified to go to the cross And there, when he was crucified by man, God poured out or imputed to him the sins of the world and that he died there in our place. That's what we have studied in the previous lessons in terms of uh, substitutionary atonement, that our sins were put on him and therefore our sins were paid for. But as I pointed out, there are basically three problems. The first problem is the penalty of sin, which was announced to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that the instant that they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die spiritually, not because the fruit was poisonous, not because somehow it was tainted or it had gotten moldy uh, in the garden or something like that, but because the issue was obedience to God. Are you going to obey God? 
because God said it, you're going to continue to have him and his authority as the sovereign creator, or you're going to make up your mind what right and wrong is. Adam, Eve first, then Adam, decided that they would evaluate God's dictum to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so they were going to experiment and see if what God said was true. Well, it was. They discovered that, and they instantly died spiritually. They were separated from God, alienated from the life of God, alienated from uh, his righteousness and his justice, alienated from his person, and separated from him. The result of that was when is evident in Genesis 3 that when God came to walk in the garden with them as he did every day, their response was to run and hide. They had not done that before because when they were spiritually alive, they had a relationship with God. Now there was something different. And when they heard him, they were afraid and they ran and hid. So they were spiritually dead at that point. The list of things that are identified by God later and referred to as the curse in Genesis uh, 3, uh, 15 and following are really the consequences that would come into all of creation and into the lives of human beings because of spiritual death, because it corru- sin corrupts everything. It corrupts the, the physical laws that God had established at the creation. It corrupted the physical planet. Biology changed. Zoology changed. Everything changed. And man was no longer the same as he was before the fall. He was now separated from God. So Christ paid that penalty on the cross. But there's two other problems that result from spiritual death that were not, that were provided for on the cross, but were not solved in us at the cross. See, Colossians 3, 2 through 12 says that our sins were nailed to the cross. But we were born spiritually dead, and we were born without righteousness. The, the legal sin penalty before the, the judgment throne of God was paid for at the cross, so sins aren't the issue anymore. But we're spiritually dead, and we lack righteousness. So there has to be a provision for us to become spiritually alive and to become righteous. That's what happens when we trust in Christ as Savior. Scripture says at that instant, God makes us alive together with Christ. That same power that brought forth the resurrection of Christ, according to Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, that God made us alive together with him. The instant we trust in Christ as Savior. We are made alive together. That is called regeneration or being born again. What about righteousness? Well, if we are born unrighteous as sinners, something has to change that. Now, we can't change it ourselves. Trusting in Christ doesn't infuse us with righteousness, so we're no longer a corrupt sinner. There are those that take that kind of position. But we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ the instant that we trust in him. This is pictured in Zechariah chapter 3. It is that Christ's righteousness now envelops us. It doesn't change us from being unrighteous to being righteous experientially. We still have a sin nature. But when we trust in Christ as Savior, God the Father credits or imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin 
was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So we're given uh, eternal life at the instant we trust in Christ, and we're given the righteousness of Christ so that we are declared righteous. That's what is meant by justification by faith alone. We're declared righteous, and we are born anew. We are a new creature in Christ. Now, I say all of that as sort of a preface to understanding that what the Scriptures teach us is that any sins that we commit are legally paid for at the cross. The fact that we are spiritually dead when we are born is resolved through regeneration, uh, that it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so we are declared righteous because of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and we are made alive uh, together with Christ. That is what saves us. It is an eternal promise that cannot be broken. So what does it mean when the Scripture comes along and says that if you are are characterized by these sins, and I think it is not talking about the fact that somebody committed this sin or that sin once or twice or even a hundred times, that that excludes them from this inheritance. But this is talking about the fact that there are consequences to believers not consequences of their eternal salvation or loss of their eternal salvation, if they do not learn to grow in the spiritual life and learn to um, to walk with the Lord. There are consequences. There are things that happen. And so we, that, that's really at the core of this passage uh, that we are looking at. But we need to look at the broader context just in terms of review. I want to take us back a little bit to Ephesians uh, 4.25. Starting in Ephesians 4.25, we start to see a pattern, a pattern of a positive command. A positive command says to do something right, to speak the truth with your neighbor. That's a positive command. Or there are negative commands such as do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your, on your wrath or give place to the devil. So there's a, it alternates, and it, that alternation between positive command and negative command continues uh, down through verse 18, and following verse 18, which talks about being filled by means of the Spirit, we have a series of participles grammatically that start to describe the life of the person who is positively fulfilling these commands, including being filled by means of the Spirit. So let me just sort of summarize this because it's important to get this context for our passage. It starts off with a statement, therefore, having already put off the lie. Now, we've gone over this again and again, but we have visitors here this morning. And so just to remind you that in, for example, the New King James Version, it says, therefore, putting away, as if it's a present tense, putting away lying. But in the Greek, it doesn't have a participle. The ing is either participle or gerund in English, and that usually indicates some sort of process. But it is a noun and has an article in front of the noun. 
And so it should be translated, therefore, having already, because the verb is a past tense, having already put off the lie. That's what happened when you and I were saved. We put off the lie. We were in Adam, and we were uh, dominated in our thinking by our sin nature and by the world system. But when we trusted in Christ positionally, we took that, let's go back to the illustration I've used of wearing a team jersey. And our team jersey said, in Adam. And so we took that off and we put on a new jersey in Christ. We're now a new person in Christ. That doesn't mean automatically we do everything right because we don't know anything about the uh, the Bible or the Word. So the the beginning here is therefore having already put off the lie. Then there's a positive command. Speak the truth with your neighbor. Now that isn't just saying speak true things or don't lie to your neighbor. It is saying talk within the framework of biblical truth. Satan is the father of lies. In contrast, we're told God is truth. The Word of God is truth. So what this is talking about is that our conversations, and by that I don't mean that we can't talk about sports or, or the how Alabama whipped up on LSU last night or how unfortunate it was that the uh, Astros didn't uh, defeat the Texas Rangers or what kind of movie you saw that you enjoyed. We, we're not talking about that, but that what we talk about that relates to values, that relates to uh, absolutes that relates to what we call a worldview, our biblical world, our worldview is biblical. We talk, we have conversations within the framework of a biblical worldview, an understanding that there are absolutes of right and wrong. There are things that we are not to do, things that we are to do, that we understand that things are not relative, that we don't make up our own reality that we don't uh, go around thinking, well, I, I want to do whatever I want to do and I don't want to ever hear anybody judge me or I'm just going to have a meltdown. I don't want to hear anybody indicate that something is right or something is wrong. So we are to talk with our neighbor. And in this particular passage, it defines our neighbor as those where we are members of one another. So this is talking about within the body of Christ. It's not talking about the person you hardly know who lives next door to you. It's talking about other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, our conversation should be characterized by the framework of biblical truth. Now, the reason I'm bringing that out is because I think this sets a topical approach to everything that follows. So that when we have these various passages that talk about let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth or even when we get down into our passage talking about foolish talking or coarse jesting, that's talking about are you talking and acting like an unbeliever living within a postmodern worldview? Are you talking or acting and prioritizing things that characterize somebody who's walking with the Lord and somebody who is, whose thinking is shaped by a biblical worldview? So this sets that tone for speaking. There's a lot said in the subsequent verses down through uh, at least 5-7 talk that talk about our conversation. So we have a conversation, uh, uh, we have a positive command, be angry. And I explained that anger, it's just uh, sometimes an automatic reflex. Somebody says something, does something, and we just instantly, it starts to flare. But then the negative command is don't sin. 
Don't let that emotion that's starting to well up within you of anger cause you to sin in either mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, or overt sins. And get this dealt with quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give place to the devil. Three negatives that are there. And then uh, it starts the next verse. It says, don't steal anymore. That's a a negative command also. Don't steal. The positive command is work. So you see this contrast that's going all through this section. Work with what is good to give something to have those with need. Then there's another negative command. Don't speak in terms of the corruption of the lie. That's my paraphrase of going back to Ephesians 4.25. The positive is speak gracious words of edification. So we see, we understand what we're supposed to do because uh, Paul is contrasting the right way and the wrong way with a whole series of different examples. Speak words of grace, kindness to one another, words that are edifying. goes on, and in, there's a negative command, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So how would you grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, you would be speaking within the framework of a lie with your neighbor. You would be getting angry and sinning. Uh, you would be giving place to the devil. Uh, you would uh, steal. All of those things would be uh, go along the line of that neg- negative command of don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You'd be grieving the Holy Spirit. Um, and so that, that goes on to say um, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then verse 31 as a list of sins, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking again. He put away with you with all malice. So we should understand evil speaking again, going back to 425, as putting off, we have put off the lie. Evil speaking is that which characterizes those who are dominated in their thinking by a non-biblical way of looking at life. We have a positive command to be kind to one another. And an example, an example we have trouble living up to. We are to forgive one another. In the Greek, the word for forgive is the one that emphasizes the graciousness of forgiving. It's, it's a graciousness that is uh, not deserved. Uh, we're, we're forgiving them even though they don't deserve to be forgiven. And we are doing it kindly. Forgive one another as Christ forgave you. So this is the first of two times in this immediate passage where Christ is the pattern. That's why we, I've spent so much time talking about what happens on the cross. We need to really think about that, reflect upon it. God's love for us at the cross is how we're to love one another. And we have to understand what happens, what transpired at, at the cross to love one another. We're to imitate God. Again, God is the pattern. Then we come to this new section that we're in, starting in 5.2. And as I've divided this up and believe that the commands to walk are the dividing sections all through here. We're to walk in love here. And then when we get to verse 8, walk as children of light. All of these identify what it means to walk worthy of our calling back in the beginning of this chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. So the positive command is to walk in love, imitating Christ's love, which he demonstrated on the cross by dying in our place as our substitute. The negative is, uh, as I've summarized it, 
don't have your values, actions, and conversations characterized by the sinful values, actions, and conversations of those controlled by their sin nature. That's what we're looking at now in in uh, chapter 5, uh, verses 3 through 5. But this goes back to this description of these particular sins and actions, goes back to verse 17, where verse 17, Paul is gives the second walk command as a prohibition that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. You shouldn't live your life that way. And when he talks about living your life, first of all, you don't think like they think. Secondly, you don't act like they act. And third, you don't talk like they talk. There are differences within the framework. And we're not talking about whether you say certain words that may be taken as socially unacceptable or profanity. A lot of that is interestingly just culturally determined. You can be in even in some subculture within uh, within your sphere where using certain words are not considered offensive or awful or things of that nature, but you step out and you're with another group, well, then you wouldn't say those things. It's interesting. Um, my wife grew up in Mexico City. She's bilingual. And she taught and taught bilingual schools here in Houston as well as when we were in Connecticut. Now, here in Houston, the predominant language, Hispanic language, is, you know, it's, the predominant language is Spanish, and it's a Mexican form of Spanish. At least that's been true until recently. We've got so many coming from other places. Yesterday when we were out at the picnic out at Orlando's, we were talking a little bit about this, and Orlando said that the accent he hears in Walmart or the grocery store wherever today is predominantly Venezuelan. He knows that because he's Venezuelan. It's not Mexican. It's not Colombian. It's not Guatemalan. It's not Cuban or Puerto Rican. It's Venezuelan. It's interesting. You don't find any Americans trying to get into Venezuela, do you? None of these socialists that keep talking about things are trying to, well, let's leave America and go down to Venezuela. Doesn't happen. But anyway, so when we went to Connecticut, it was a different Spanish. You had people from the Dominican Republic. You had people from Cuba. You had people from Puerto Rico. Very different. And one of the interesting things that happened that she related to me was that in a, just an everyday conversation in Spanish with a, two or three of these different teachers that were from different countries is one of the teachers used a word or an idiom that was just shocking to one of the others. One was from, I don't know what country, the Dominican. One was from uh, Colombia. But that word or phrase to a someone in the Dominican Republic was perfectly fine and acceptable and had no taint to it whatsoever. But the person from Colombia, it was an extremely offensive and profane statement. And you see this around the world. See, a lot of these words that we say, well, this is acceptable and this is not, it even changes over, over, over time. Uh, those are culturally determined 
And so we should, I'm not saying we shouldn't be sensitive to that because, because we should, but I think that when we look at these kinds of descriptions, we're not just talking about saying this word or that word. We're talking about the framework in which things are said and reflecting the ultimate wor- worldview. So there's a difference in how a believer should think and how the unbelieving world thinks. Now, that was not always true as, as true in this country as it is now. You go back 150 years where there was a very heavy, heavy influence of the Bible in this culture that even, even rank unbelievers had to be in a certain setting or they would not say or talk or act a, a certain way. People had an understanding of what right and wrong was, and there were right things to say and there were wrong things to, to say. We've lost that because the, cha- the loss of the uh, Judeo-Christian worldview's impact o- on our culture. So when we get to these verses, we have these lists uh, of these sins. And so there should be, there, there are differences on how a believer should think, how he should act, how he should talk that are defined by Scripture. It's not legalism. It is that you, you're, we are to reflect the character of God. So there's a warning here now, and that warning is that that if a believer does not grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, continues to think, talk, and act like an unbeliever, that it's indicative there's no spiritual growth and that there are consequences, which is defined as um, that they do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So we have to ask some key questions as we look at this passage. First of all, why are these particular sins mentioned here? And second, how do they relate to those mentioned in 425 and following? So we have a list of sins there, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, uh, be angry and sinning, giving place to the devil, a whole list of sins there that aren't mentioned here. Here we have uh, three primary sins uh, that, are, that are mentioned and warned against. Why those? Second question is further... How does that relate to the following sections that go down through five, uh, at least 518 uh, in talking about being filled by the Spirit? Because you have this contrast as you go through here. And as you go through here, you see a contrast. For example, starting in verse 8, we're to walk as children of the light. And uh, we are not, uh, Paul says in, at the beginning, he says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. That's who we are. We have a new identity. And he says, then walk as children of light. So apparently you can be light in the Lord, but not walking as a child of light. That's very important. We'll we'll get to this. And then we continue to read that. Um, We're told we should not have any fellowship or partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness, but we're to expose them. You can only expose them by the light. Then he goes on to say that we're to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So this is another contrast. Don't live like a foolish person, which which is those who are in darkness, those who are living like Gentiles, but we are to uh, live as wise. Where Where do we get wisdom? Well, that's part of the next part. It has to do with being filled by the Spirit. 
and in contrast to seeking spirituality through inebriation, which was part of several of the uh, pagan uh, mystery religions in the ancient world. And then we have this third question, which is what does it mean to not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? So I'm hoping I've set this up. This is really the introduction to what we're going to start getting into next time. But we have to understand what these issues are that are in the Scripture. So when we look at this next section, Paul is saying, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, so there's three sins there, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Now, what he means when he says not even be named among you is he's been saying this is not something that should characterize your gatherings. You know, if you get out in a lot of context, and some of you work in workplaces where there's nobody there that's a believer, and things can get really raunchy, and especially today when everybody has to be woke and everybody has to be pro-LGBTQ and all of these other things that the le- what, what is talked about, the values that are expressed can get really offensive to us and a real challenge. Uh, three sins are mentioned here, and when you're with believers, this should not be the kind of things that you talk about. There's a difference between the way that unbelievers talk about life and women and pleasure and everything else than than when you're with when you're with believers. But notice that there are three things listed here, translated as fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. And then two verses later in verse 5, Paul repeats those three. He says, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater. Notice here that idolatry is connected with covetousness, greediness. In fact, in Colossians, Paul says the same thing, greed, which is idolatry. So we're making a God out of material things and a God out of money. Now, this first word translated fornication here is the Greek word porneia, from which we get our word pornography. It's a broad word that covers any form of sexual immorality. God designed sex to be within marriage. He designed and created marriage. God designed human beings to function within the framework of marriage. It's not like God did one thing. Oh, look what I did. I created a man and a woman. Oh, well, let's come up with something else. What are they going to do together? Let's have a marriage. No, God is omniscient. He's always known all the knowable. He designed man, male and female, differently from one another. They're not interchangeable in their souls. They're not interchangeable physically. The confusion that exists is a confusion that is a consequence of sin, but that gets into a whole other issue. But God instituted marriage before there was ever sin on the face of the earth, and God created one male and one female that together they would be united in a partnership where the man had ultimate responsibility, the woman was created to help him fulfill that responsibility to serve and glorify God and rule over God's creation. That's Genesis 1, 25 to 28. All through that, that is God's purpose. Anything, any sexual activity apart from that marital union is immorality. It's a very, very broad, uh, broad word. 
and was often used in various passages to refer to prostitution as well as to talk about homosexuality. So when you hear the LGBTQ advocates say, well, the Bible never really condemns homosexuality, well, they're just ignorant. They're just repeating talking points. Pornea covers all sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. So that's the first word. The second word is another very broad word, is akatharisia, akatharisia, Katharos is the noun which means to be cleansed. Okay, that's what happens when we talk about 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to do what? To cleanse us. That's the verb, katharizo. So this is the opposite of being cleansed. So this is somebody, the A at the beginning is like our prefix U-N, uh, we, you, we use it all the time. You talk about somebody who believes in God, they're a theist. If they don't believe in God, what are they? They're an atheist. That A at the beginning comes from Greek grammar, and it means you're not a theist. Here it's somebody who's not clean. That means their life is characterized by continuous sin with no recognition that, that this is sin. So they are defined as being... Um, uh, impure spiritually. Now, this is not the first time Paul's used this word in this context. In Ephesians 4.19, which goes back to talking about the, spiritual, the way the Gentiles walk, that in verse 18, they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and the blindness of their heart, and being past feeling, that is, being past any inclination toward God, they have given themselves over to lewdness, now, lewdness here is the same word that we have down in um, in verse 3 as uncleanness. Uh, not uncleanness. It's the word uh, asalgeia, uh, lewdness, to practice all uncleanness. And I misidentified that. So uh, lewdness, I got confused on this, I think. Okay, uh, lewdness is asalgeia, and uncleanness is akarthasia. Okay? And so this lewdness is, a pra- is, is then indicated as practicing uncleanness, sinful acts. Thayer in his lexicon lists for lewdness, for asogeia, unbridled lust, excess licentiousness, which is being permissive about all areas of sinful activity. It's like you have a license to sin. Licentiousness, lasciviousness, which is just sexual lust, wantonness, outrageousness. Anybody seen anything related to any parades or anything that are would categorize as outrageous? Shamelessness and insolence. Okay, it is a per- sexually permissiveness. And notice how it's linked with greediness, idolatry. Okay, who's who are we worshiping? We're worshiping self. Now, why these sins to Ephesus? I was thinking about this the other day. I hadn't thought about this in a long time. In fact, I, I want to make sure I was right, and I called Wayne, and Wayne said, I don't know. So I dug around, and I did a couple of searches on the Internet, and I was right, and I found some pictures. I couldn't believe I found this. So this is a picture Anybody have an idea what this picture is? You have a footprint. The main thing you see there is a footprint. To the upper left is a heart shape, 
What do we use heart shapes to do today? Indicate love. Hasn't changed any. It's a heart shape. And up to the upper right, it's covered by a shadow here. But in, in my picture, it's there. It's a coin. And so, and down here, it's not real clear in the picture I took, but one I found on the internet, it's, it's a beautiful girl. This is how to get to the house of ill repute, to the brothel. It's right next to the big uh, library of Celsus in Ephesus. And so there's a, there's a tunnel that you would go down. And, but what this is saying is that if your foot is this bigger, bigger, you're old enough to go. And this is your left foot, so you make a left turn. And you're going to find love, but you're going to have to pay for it. But you'll find beautiful girls there. So this was commonly accepted in Ephesus. So Paul is talking to these Ephesian believers about the things that are going on right there in their culture. And this is what is acceptable. So that's why he seems to hone in on these three particular sins is because they were problems in the culture. And when people get saved out of a culture, they bring all their sinful proclivities with them into the Christian life. So that's why he's picking on these three, but it's not an exhaustive list, as we'll see. So the second point I said we need to look at is how does this relate to the following sections down to Ephesians 5.18? I just ran through that. We see this contrast. Again, we've had positive and negative commands, and then we see this contrast between darkness and light, foolishness and wise, uh, spirituality by inebriation, which was typical in the worship of Dionysius. You classicists, who was Dionysius the god of? Wine, like Bacchus in Roman. You know, and how do you get close to the god of wine? Well, you drink enough wine, then his spirit will enter into your spirit, and you'll talk in ecstatic utterance, and, and you'll be spiritual. So that, that, we have to understand that from the background. Paul's talking to where these people are living. And then the third question I said was, what does it mean to not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? Okay, so I've got a, I've got a comparison here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, we have theologians call these vice lists. That's sanitized. These are sin lists, sins that we've all committed or will commit or might commit. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, if you look at this, and I've taught this before, we'll go back, we'll go through this again. Unrighteous there does not mean unbelievers. Unrighteousness means that those who are not doing righteousness and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does it mean to not do righteousness? He says, don't be deceived. Neither notice this in Corinthians, he mentions 10 sins, not that, and they're at least the three that are in Ephesians says those who are fornicators, that's porneia, nor idolaters. Notice this close connection there, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. LGBTQ, hello, homosexuality is listed as a sin. But what you get is a lot of these legalistic, biblically illiterate preachers who think what this means is that they're not, they can't be saved. 
And that's wrong. So they're very hateful in the way they approach any kind of ministry to somebody who has a same-sex proclivity in their sin nature. This doesn't mean that. This is not an excuse to be angry, hateful, mean, spirited, or say they're all going to go to hell. Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous. Now, I think covetous might be one of those words that maybe 99.9% of all Christians have committed to one degree or another in their life in this materialistic culture. Just saying, I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody. Okay, so these sins are common sins to one degree or another among among everyone, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. None of these folks are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, does that mean they can't be saved or that they'll lose their salvation? What we're going to say, what we're going to learn here is, and I don't think I'll quite get to it all right, maybe I will, is that there are, There are inheritance promises that are true for every believer for all time, irregardless of any behavior. We will all have everlasting life. We will all have a resurrection body. We will all have joy indescribable. But there will be some things that we don't all share in. And that's going to be determined by our spiritual growth and spiritual life. They're referred to as rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 has 10 sins listened. Galatians five nineteen to 21 has over 17 listed. The works of the flesh. So if you want to decide, am I, is my life basically characterized by this in nature or is my, by, my life basically characterized by the Holy Spirit, you've got a checklist here. It starts off in 19 to 21 with your sins, and then that's followed with the fruit of the Spirit from 22 uh, to 2023. So here we have now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. We've already covered those. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, that's the Greek word pharmakeia. We would translate that in our culture as someone who is using drugs to solve the problems of life. Um, And I'm not talking about using drugs to solve your arthritis or things of that nature. This This is hallucinogenic. These are things that divorce you from reality. Uh, Idolatry, uh, drug use, uh, hatred, contentions, jealousies. These kinds of things can really characterize a relationship that's falling apart, whether it's divorce or whether it is another, another form of a romantic relationship that starts to go bad. People just get consumed by anger, resentment, hatred that takes over. You have outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, that's what's in a local church. Uh, Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and just so you know, it's not an exhaustive list, and the like. Okay, so we went from three in one passage to ten sins in another to 17 plus here. We could probably list a few more if we put our minds to it. So we're going to talk about what the Bible teaches about inheritance in Ephesians because it's mentioned a couple of times back in chapter 1. So just to remind you, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, we have the longest sentence in Greek. The longest sentence in Greek, and it is a, a statement about 
blessing or praising God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And really, verses 4 through 6, you have blessing related to the Father. Then in verses 7 to 12, blessings from the Son. Then in 12 through 14, you had blessings from, related to the role of God, uh, God the Holy Spirit. And to understand this, a key thing that we must understand is the role of these prepos- uh, excuse me, pronouns that we have here. And the key pronoun is either a first-person plural, we or us. Who's the we? Who's the us? You have to define that because in this verse, first uh, verse it says God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. What is that? Who's that refer to? You think that refers to you? Not really. How do you know that? Well, the us doesn't refer to Gentiles until you get down to about chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, we'll, we'll see here in, in uh, verse 12, in verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Who's the we? Who were the first ones to trust in Christ as Messiah? Jews. So he starts off talking about the blessings God has given us as Jews, and only later does he says, guess what? You Gentiles get to join us too. So this is how it starts. So if we look at this, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's talking about Jews, who has blessed us Jews with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. And we have to talk a little bit about adoption too. That's important because adoption relates to inheritance. In the ancient world, in Rome, Roman law, adoption wasn't like adoption today. Adoption today is you have a couple, they can't have kids, so they look for somebody who doesn't want their kid. And then they adopt that kid and bring him into that family, and it's legal, and they become part of, part of this new family. In the ancient world, a man and a woman, let's say a king and his uh, queen, uh, have six daughters. Henry, Think about Henry VIII. But in ancient Rome, it was legal for the man to go out, and he has a consort or uh, an affair, and she gives birth to a son. It was better than Henry VIII. He just beheaded his wife so he could marry another one. In Roman law, you went out and you had an affair, and she has a son, and then you legally adopted that son, and he became the legal heir. That's how all this ties together. That son is adopted not to be part of the family, but to be the legal heir. We are adopted into God's family to be heirs. So this is talking about a world, a, uh, a general inheritance true for everyone. So the fact that it's talking about Jews, as I said, Ephesians 1.12, we who first trusted in Christ. Then you go on and talk about the blessing to Christ. In him we have redemption. Uh, he made it abound to us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Skip down to 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance 
he's still talking about Jews that we who first trusted in Christ. So he's got to be consistent. And um, it's amazing. You read most scholars and they don't think the we us equals Jew versus Gentile until you get to 212. But there's nothing between here and 212 to indicate that he changes his meaning at any point along the way. At the end, he says, in him you also trusted after you. Notice the ship. This is the first time he says you. He's not talking about you, the Ephesian churches. He's talking about you Gentiles to be consistent with the rest of the, of, of the epistle. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also having, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of what? Our inheritance. Now who does our refer to? It refers to Jew and Gentile together. There is a guaranteed inheritance by God the Holy Spirit. So we've run out of time here, but the point that I am making here, that, that it, the question is, can we lose inheritance? It's clear that there are at least four passages that talk about this. But it's not the same inheritance as what's covered in Ephesians 1. That is a guaranteed by the Holy Spirit inheritance that cannot be taken uh, from us. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has what? According to his abundant mercy, his exceeding grace in action, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What are we regenerated to? There's a purpose. The Greek preposition indicates the purpose for that being born again. It is for the purpose of an inheritance, a possession incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. See, it's guaranteed. You, what? who's the you? It's further defined by, this, by verse 5, who are kept by the power of God. The sealing of the Spirit is part of our evidence of eternal security. And eternal security means that God keeps us saved. It's not up to us. And you constantly have in a number of verses this, this Greek word for, translated kept, and it's usually followed by God or by the power of God. God is the one who keeps us. It is not that we persevere. It is that God, Christ, perseveres in keeping us saved. Through faith for a salvation. This is talking about our, what happens at the judgment seat of Christ, our glorification, phase three, salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See, that's not salvation getting justified. That's salvation, the end process. And so this is a guarantee. There is an inheritance that is reserved, kept by the power of God, that will not fade away, that is ours. But the warning in, in Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, is that failure to walk with the Lord and to grow spiritually will have some consequences. And we'll look at those next time when we look at the judgment seat of Christ. And as we've studied that, we're going to be very close on top of these things with the study in Philippians on the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, rather. 
uh, not the day of the Lord, the day of Christ. That refers to the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. That there are believers who receive rewards and that there are believers who do not. And that's the difference. There's an inheritance that we all have in common, eternal life, glorification that is ours, that we have a resurrection body and there'll be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain for the old things are passed away. But there are going to be some differences depending on what we do with what God has given us, how we live our spiritual life based on the assets that God has given us. And because what we have today is we're in training. We're in training to develop the skills, the character qualities necessary to be part of the administration of the millennial kingdom, to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. All believers in this church age are going to be there. Some are going to have more responsibilities, some less responsibilities, some no responsibilities. If you're going to have rulers, what do you have to have? You have to have subjects. So not everybody's going to be equal. There are a lot of people who teach that, but I think they're wrong. I think the scriptures are very clear. There's going to be differences, and differences depend on how well we do in boot camp, which is now. So if you look at a military analogy, those who go through boot camp, at the end of boot camp, they're ranked. Those who do well, they get more schools offered to them. They get more opportunities. Those who just barely make it, well, they're going to be cannon fodder in the next war. How well we perform has an eternal difference. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your remarkable, unfathomable grace, a grace that has provided above and beyond everything necessary to give us salvation, eternal life, to justify us, to regenerate us, not on the basis of anything we do, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so the issue for eternal life, for avoiding the eternal penalty of the lake of fire, is to trust in Christ as our Savior, to believe him, to believe that he is the God-man who paid the penalty for our sins, and that it has nothing whatsoever to do with what we have done or what what other things we may have believed. It is faith alone in Christ alone for our salvation. And Father, we pray too that we might realize that as a believer, we're not just saved so that we can have eternal life, but that there is a purpose to that life. There's a significance to that life that that goes into eternity. We're just not going to sit on a cloud strumming a harp. There will be roles and responsibilities that extend far beyond the millennial kingdom into eternity, something beyond which we cannot imagine. And we're thankful for that, that this is all due to your incredible grace. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone who's here, anyone who has, uh, who listens to this online or is live streaming or whomever, that they might understand that their salvation is not dependent upon what they do, what they haven't done, sins they've committed or haven't committed. It's dependent upon the work, faith in the work of Christ on the cross. And that's our basis. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But also it's a challenge to every one of us who are believers that we are saved for a purpose. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and we are to grow and mature so that we can serve you, Lord, for you are uh, have saved us for a purpose. And so we need to be challenged that we need to really focus on the Word because 
you may not return for us for a thousand years, but things look like they could be soon. Are we ready? Father, help us think through this. In Christ's name, amen.